0: Working with real estate investors is quite different than working with, you know, your average first time buyer or someone who's just selling a house and buying a house. Real estate investors need, handholding They are a different type of client. They need strategizing. They need planning. They need to be able to trust you, that you have their best interests at heart. Most of all, they need to know that you've got the team behind you that can service them. So That was really how we got into it. It was a big thing for us to realize that we didn't want to go after the same market everyone else was going after. That was the other thing too, Scott. Every single mortgage broker at that time, we're talking the early 2000s, was just going after the same type of client. And we were like, no, 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 no. Let's go where the puck is going to go, not where the puck is. To steal away the analogy.
1: The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Dave Butler from BM Select Mortgages. Dave runs what is probably the biggest mortgage team in Canada. In 2020, they did 550 million, 1,200 mortgages. And 85% of that business is with first-time or repeat investors, so people buying investment property. And what's interesting about Dave is he has a team of 35 people with two salespeople, and the 35 people are all broken into departments that help make the process run efficiently and take care of their clients. A couple of big takeaways from this episode. First, his business model is completely different than Ron Butler's model. So Ron has been on the show numerous times. Ron is his dad and has a high volume, low margin business. So it's very much in the rate game. Dave's business is not in the rate business. He's in the niche investment real estate and provides solutions to clients that are looking to buy one, two, three, four, five plus investment properties. And so it's kind of interesting to see how they can, you know, have the same name but completely different Models that they run. He also shares how having a heart attack at 38 nearly killed him made him completely rethink how he runs his business. And now, since then, he put a team in place. He's not having to work as much or as hard and he's got people kind of in their sweet spot and he's now not even doing the sales calls. He's focusing on, you know, what the market needs and how to build his team, which is amazing. And then he also shares how they do absolutely no marketing. So that's another difference between him and Ron Butler's business is very strong on marketing. That's what they're very good at. And Dave does no marketing at all. So it's all no website, no social media. They haven't reached out to their database in 12 years and yet they can barely keep up with the business. And he says, and I agree with him, it's totally to do with A, they focus on a particular niche that they're really good at. And second, they provide amazing experience. They focus on service and because of it, they take care of their clients and they get more of them. So it's pretty awesome. Also today I talk on Ask the Expert segment with Tom Hall. Tom is from Blue Mortgage and Tom and I talk about his three tips on incorporating your customer journey with your technology. So if you don't remember, we do these Ask the Expert segments at the end of a regular podcast, where i bring in somebody who's an expert on the topic and we dive into some specific tips for you to help you make it better. So Tom is gonna talk about his three tips for incorporating your customer journey with technology. And I know that Tom's company actually helped dave and then become digitized so dave talks about how in their business was a folder that they'd moved from department to department in a physical office up until very recently and then they spent eight months building out a very customized solution and i know that it's kind of interesting it was just random but tom's company was the guys that helped them with that so it's pretty cool also shout out to our title sponsor which is finmo i want to thank those guys for allowing me to do what i love to do which is talk to interesting people Learn stuff, share it with you so that you can have a better mortgage business. So, thank you guys. One of the cool things about FINMO is they have integration with Lender Spotlight. So, if you don't know what Lender Spotlight is? It's actually a tool for you to go in and search lender pricing on a whole bunch of different mortgage products. And it's super slick. I know the guys that built it and then FINMO acquired it. And so a lot of mortgage brokers in the Canadian mortgage space use it because it's just so much more effective than trying to keep track of all these, you know, rate sheets and what this lender's offering. And so Finmo is tied into that. So it makes it really easy. If you're working with Finmo application, you can tie it into Lender Spotlight. So check that out. You can check out Finmo and check out this episode with Dave. It was a lot of fun chatting with him. Hey, Dave, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Scott. Nice to uh, be on the show. I really appreciate you bringing me on.
1: Yeah, man, it's been great to connect. So, before we get into your story, I got a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you. But like, how did you get into the mortgage business, right? Like, what's the path to where you are today?
0: Path was pretty straightforward. I was 21, getting out of university, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had gone to U of T. You know, you're in these broad programs, accounting, finance. da-da-da. my dad was in mortgages. And it kind of just made sense to me to at least give that a try. My younger brother was actually working for my father at the time. So I jumped on board, worked at my father's for about eight months. I was watching the way my dad and my brother were doing the business. And they were doing quite well, but it was a lot more heavy marketing. They were big time marketers. That's my dad's background. For me at the time, then 22 year old kid, not a lot of access to money. Marketing maybe wasn't the biggest thing that I was looking at. I was looking at more relationships, trying to seek out specific demographics that might need someone like myself. So at that time, I asked my dad if he could help me get connected with Mortgage Intelligence, who at the time was the number one brokerage in Canada there was a bit of a strategy for wanting to go to mortgage intelligence because I figured I'm a 22-year-old pimple-faced kid straight out of university, you know, and my idea was I was going to go after a bunch of these real estate agents and have them send me business. Well, I didn't want to walk into a real estate office and hand out my card, which was at the time my dad worked for an independent out of like Newmarket, you know, so I figure I'm walking into a real estate office. I'm going to hand them a card that I work for an independent brokerage, which they'd never seen in their life. There's no impression there. So I wanted to go to mortgage intelligence because I thought, hey, to offset my youth and my inexperience, if I have a card that has the number one brokerage on it, maybe that'll help me keep my foot in the door. So that was kind of the strategy. So my dad hooked me up with a guy that was doing the hiring named Peter Doherty. He was at Mortgage Intelligence. I met with Peter, proposed him my business plan, and he hired me. And I think he took a chance on me, obviously because of my dad, but they gave me full reign. They said, here you go. You can build your own team, you do your
1: thing. And I was off to the races. Right. Okay. So, in the eight months that you spent at Butler for your dad, what were you doing there? Sales? Like, how much did that help you? Like, I'm sure that you probably compressed multiple years of learning because of the volume you guys do into that eight months. Like,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah I started off doing apps. It was like anything. First, you start off not even knowing what you're doing. So, you know, my dad taught me the different phases of a mortgage application, how to read a credit bureau, stuff like that. And then knowing me and my brother, we were just always wanting to try. Like I hate learning like from a book. I like to just learn by making mistakes so then my dad put us on the phone. And first we start taking application. Back then you took an application over the phone and you input it into LSS, I think it was, or something. There was new some similar some use, but yeah. And then at that point, then started getting into sales. I now knew how to do a mortgage application. Now I wanted to talk to them, put it all together. Within eight months, I had you know closed deals that my dad had given me the leads for from start to finish. And I feel like in the mortgage business, once you've done a deal from start to finish. Aside from the different nuances of different applications, that really gives you a lot of confidence, you know, to take a file where the guy calls in and then you do the application, send it to lender, get it approved, sign the client up, you know, close the deal going through that process. And I think once you get that, that's when at first the light bulb goes off and you're like, okay, I think I know how to do this mortgage thing now.
1: So that was kind of how I started. That's how you started. Then you jumped into your own thing. Okay. So, you know, your dad's been on the show multiple times and love chatting with him. Very fun guy to chat with. And your business model is very different than his. So tell me about how your business model is different and kind of the niche that you guys have focused on, because I think most people would assume that you guys are the same, but you're not at all. It's like, you know, very different.
0: Yeah, we're completely opposite. So, you know, as I say, my dad and my brother are very hyper marketing, I call it, you know, their business model is just off marketing, you know, um, the internet, radio, whatever it is, they're about getting their name out there. You know, I had a different philosophy. Mine was go after real estate agents. And then I really... It was probably in my first year of doing it on my own, I started to really say, hey, wait a second, you know, there is a large chunk of people out there that are actually looking to buy not one property that they move into, and then they see you every five years. There's a group of people that are actually looking to buy possibly five properties in a year, and that's real estate investors. So it was really just simple math for me. I can work with clients that need a mortgage once every three to five years. Or I can work with clientele that might need my services five to 10 times in one year. And obviously, at that time, it just made sense for me from a revenue standpoint to go after that market. I also with my business partner, Daniel, you know, we were so young and we had known each other for so long. And we just said, hey, this is a long game for us. I mean, this is not a five year thing. We want to make careers out of this. So we really were patient with it. And we went after real estate agents and real estate agents that were working with investors. This is at a time when there weren't a lot of real estate investment clubs out there like there are today. Today, it's a whole different landscape. But at that time, we were able to get ourselves entrenched with a lot of smart real estate agents that were running investment type situations. And then they all over the next 10 to 20 years started to flourish and become bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's really it. I mean, and there was a lot for us to learn. I mean, working with real estate investors is quite different than working with you know, your average first-time buyer or someone who's just selling a house and buying a house. Real estate investors need handholding. They are a different type of client. They need strategizing. They need planning. They need to be able to trust you, that you have their best interest at heart. Most of all, they need to know that you've got the team behind you that can service them. So that was really how we got into it. It was a big thing for us to realize that we didn't want to go after the same market everyone else was going after. That was the other thing too, Scott. Every single mortgage broker at that time, we're talking the early 2000s, was just going after the same type of client. And we were like, no, 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 no. Let's go where the puck is going to go, not where the puck is, to steal right. away Wayne the analogy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Okay, so you're 21 or maybe 22 now, and you still, maybe you look a little bit older. Do you immediately go after the investment business or is that something you did over time? Because I think it's a great niche. So it sounds like what you did, you focused on a niche that's very profitable and very you know, repeat business. But like, when did that happen? Was it right away? Did it take a bit of time to find that?
0: There was a lot of luck involved. I'll tell you a quick story. I was uh, into bodybuilding when I was in my teenage years at high school in my early 20s and used to work out at a place called Gold's Gym in Mississauga, a goalie that I had played hockey with back in the day was working out at the gym and he was with a buddy. And I got introduced to this buddy. This buddy's name was Nick Karadza at the time. And so I had met Nick. And then this is probably now a year later, I'm at the gym and I'm now in my own career. I've left my dad's outfit. I'm at Mortgage Intelligence. I'm working out at the gym. I see Nick by himself. We start talking and he says, yeah, me and my brother, Tom, are looking to buy investment properties. So I said, hey, I'm a mortgage broker. You know, I'd like to work with you. So uh, Tom and Nick procured my services. I worked with them, helped them buy some investment properties or get the mortgages for investment properties. We kept going. They kept doing more, more, more. They started bringing me their parents. They also happened to have friends that were wanting to be real estate investors. And all of a sudden, now I'm working with this large group of clients that have really good applications. And I'm doing a lot of planning for them, helping them buy lots of properties. And Tom and Nick, they worked at companies. Tom was working at Oracle. Nick was working somewhere else. They were doing very well. But where I think we got really lucky is they are very, very, very bright brothers. And they decided and took a major gamble and a career path change. And they decided they were going to open, at the time, it was called Income for Life. It was one of the first real estate investment clubs to open up in Ontario. Obviously, they weren't rain or anything like that, but they were probably one of the next ones coming up. And Tom and Nick opened their own investment club. Shortly after that, they got their own real estate uh, brokerage license. They changed their name to Rockstar Real Estate. And I don't know if any of your I've heard of them. I've heard of them before.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're very good marketers. yeah. That helped build the initial stage of your business, would you say?
0: That was a massive launch pad for us because as they brought in more investors and they're very salt of the earth type guys, and they really are trying to get a good message to they really built their member base up high. And that really exposed us to a large amount of real estate investors where now we're not waking up every day, trying to find out how we're going to get business we're waking up to email after email after email of leads that they're sending us where we have to do our job and prepare and plan and strategize for their investors. And that was it. I mean, we were off and running at that point.
1: Yeah, that's super cool. So then that kind of puts you down the path of like, hey, this is a great niche. So how's being part of like Butler with the rate discounting side, they're very marketing heavy. Has that been any challenges for you guys, given that that's not what you do?
0: Yeah, it's very challenging, obviously, because, you know, they do have a great presence. Their strategy is out there in the sense of, you know, when you're dealing with Butler Mortgage, you're getting that, you know, it's all about low rates, fast processing. It's in out, you know, the challenge there is that we're working with real estate investors. And what a lot of people don't know, maybe is that, you know, mortgages for investment properties is a whole different ballgame in terms of interest rates than let's say someone who's buying their first house. There was a massive government rule change back about five years ago that gave the big banks almost a monopoly on the investment mortgage side of the business, where the smaller lenders basically were not able to compete in that game anymore through pricing. So the banks smartly realized that they were the only ones that could play this game. The only They're game
1: in town. Yep.
0: Their price. So now mortgage rates for rentals went a little bit, not crazy, but I mean, a quarter percent, a half a Higher, so obviously the challenge for us is, you know, we'll have a client, you know, they'll hear Dave Butler, they'll go see Butler Mortgage, they'll see these crazy low rates on the website, and they'll contact us say, "Hey, I bought an investment property, I want that low rate." Well, the problem is, is that rates actually not available for that. So the challenge for us is really just. An extra 10 minutes on the phone to have to explain that client how it works. Certainly not a problem for us, but it does pose some challenges. So you
1: basically have to compete. Like some people complain about competing with Butler. You compete with them on every single call because your name is Butler. And so, and obviously when you're selling strategy, solution, it doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, you're helping people build wealth. You know, they're not getting hung up over a quarter of a percent because it's about the solutions that you guys are providing. Okay. so you mentioned something before we got on the call that you do no marketing. So what's the secret to consistently like maintaining such a high volume of business? Because you guys have been, you're probably like number one team in Canada. I don't know, you probably are. But what's the secret to being so consistent?
0: Honestly, this is going to sound crazy, but at 38 years old, I had a heart attack. And the reason why I had the heart attack was because... I am unfortunately one of these super driven guys, and I don't like to lose. I consider everything that I do a game, and I like to win. And so, for me, the mortgage business became my game. And from you know the ripe age of 22, I had decided I wanted to be the best in the mortgage business in Canada. And so, for me, that resulted in a very unbalanced life. I worked 9 a.m. till 4 a.m. five six days a week. And that was great. It was fine in your 20s because in your 20s, stuff doesn't catch up to you. And even in your 30s, things don't catch up to you. But in my late 30s, after putting in all that time, you know, and to backtrack a bit, my team now has to have the same type of mentality. And that's why, you know, we hire really only certain types of people that can handle this type of a workload. And so really it was service. My clients always knew if they're working with Dave Butler, they're getting an absolute pitbull. They're getting a guy that is not gonna stop until you've got your mortgage. I'm very passionate about it. When we take on a client, you know, if there's something wrong with that deal, I can't sleep at night.
1: You know, that's when is you just have 1,200 deals I'm, closing a year. That's a lot of that's why you only lot. sleep four hours a night.
0: Oh <laughs> that that's a very good point. I mean, that was the idea, is that I think I was just I was a dog on a bone. My partner is as well. And everyone that works with us was the same. So it was really just, you know, at 38, I had a massive heart attack. I almost died. I had to get a stent put into my heart. I have metal in my heart. And that was an eye-opener for me to make some big changes. But to answer your question, I think it was really just tenacity, tenaciousness. We don't like to lose. We treat our team like it's a sports team. We go all out. We are doing anything we can to win within the rules. And I think our clients really like that. The real estate agents that we work with like that. The investment clubs we work with like that. And so when you build your business on that, you know, if you're doing it right, you shouldn't have to look for where your deals are coming from. Your deals should be coming into you from all your referral sources. And so when we wake up, as I was saying, even before we started the podcast, we have a very interesting problem. I haven't mined my database for 12 years. We don't have a website. I don't even go on social media. We don't even have a social media presence because... If we were to do that right now, we don't have the staff to handle barely our leads we have now. So if I was to go and try and bring in more leads, I would actually blow up my own staff. The problem is when you're in a service first business, meaning you know we are service first, as soon as you overload your system, the output gets bad. And now if you're in a service-first business, now your real estate agents, your investments clubs are calling you saying, what's going on? And maybe now they turn the top down. We want to always be at a level where they want to turn the tap up on us and that we have to then make our move to kind of match that.
1: Right, right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so because you're service first, do you tend to always be like hiring ahead of growth? Or do you tend to wait too long? Or is it that you just have trouble finding the right people? Like, I it's kind of three questions there. But like, you know, I find a lot of mortgage brokers are so hesitant to hire, they're like, Oh, I got to do everything myself. And obviously, you can't be a service focused business without a team. And so I'm just curious, like on that, how does that work?
0: Well, I can tell you for the first 17 years of my career, I was the guy who waited till things were too crazy. You know, I was waiting till I was figuring out, well, oh wow, I have so much work. I can't go to bed at 4am or having to go to bed at 6am and wake up at nine. And that's finally when I would hire someone. It wasn't until... It would have been the end of 2019. This is after I've had the heart attack and I had really decided I wanna make some changes in my business. I hired an office manager for the first time who had an HR background. And at that point she came in and uh, I gotta say, she's still to this day, probably the best hire that I've ever done. That was the non kind of mortgage type person. Didn't have any knowledge of the mortgage business at all. Her knowledge and her skill set was that she's able to come into businesses See what they're doing wrong and make tweaks to them and put them into the 21st century. I mean, at the time when I hired her, we walked around with paper files in our office and passed them from department to department. There was no online, there was no cloud, there was nothing. We were archaic, you know. So when I hired her, that's when everything changed. She came in, she immediately got us paperless. We ended up finally getting a digitized office processing system. And in that, she also changed the way we hire. We started hiring before we needed the people. We were getting resumes before, so we were now ahead of the curve. I can say this as a stat for you. In COVID, March of 2020, our team was about 18 people. Myself, my business partner, and then 18 staff. We now, a year and like three, four months later, have almost doubled that at 35, 36 staff members. And we are now trying to grow before and doing things quite different. And we've really noticed the difference. I mean, you know, we had high volume last year, but it's interesting to note that six months into 2021, we are 80% at what we did on volume of all last year. And so we're tracking for just a massive increase. Now,
1: obviously, do you think you could have done that without the team, like without investing in the team and stuff?
0: No, no chance.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The problem is, is in this business is you need the man and woman power to be able to service the leads, you know, and with that much extra business coming in, our staff is work to the bone. And part of where the reason why I like to just keep hiring now is because I do have a dream that my staff can work nine to five and that I can figure out a way to make the margins work where my staff does not have to work these insane hours. I mean, I have staff that are working 12, 13, 14 hour days. That's not healthy. I know this, I preach this, but it's so hard to get the qualified staff in here. And we've even made changes. I hate giving out some of my secrets. I don't necessarily think it's a secret, but we've even gone to a whole different ballgame now with how we are looking to hire instead of, you know, the whole go on LinkedIn and go on zip recruiter and all that stuff and try to just find a diamond in the rough, we've figured we're just gonna go and mine our own diamonds. So we've actually connected ourselves with all the major universities across Canada and we are approaching them and we have, and we're now gonna start to basically build a farm club of potential students coming out of university, particularly those in BCom programs. And because that's actually where our biggest success has been the best people on my team, the ones that were able to adapt the most came from university level programs, most of them from BCom programs. Some of them, when they have a sports background, a high level sports background, that helps too, because they're able to deal with the grind and they're able to deal with- And they're um, competitive. They are. And that's honestly, you hit it right there. Competition breeds something crazy in this business. And Dan and I, my business partner, we just wanted to go after people like-minded like us. We've actually done a massive paradigm shift for where we try to get our talent and this all started in just the last year but so far so good i mean believe it or not we've had people and it was very lucky i had investors that had sent me their sons and their daughters at an early age my best story is a kid that worked with me since he was 16 years old he would come and work in the summers when he was in high school and then when he went to university he would still work with us in the summers And then when he graduated university, he became full time. And that kid now at twenty-three years old is a supervisor at my company earning six figures. And it just goes to show. And I'll be honest, he's a dream. The kid's a dream. And I need more of those kids to build my business. Which is
1: why you're actually going down the being, hey, let's get them sooner. Let's get them out of university and like find like competitive driven people. So you're saying basically, so last year you'd mentioned you did about twelve hundred some files. So you've done almost nine hundred so far this year in like six months. Is that those numbers about right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's probably a little bit less on the on, the, on that side because units, the, the, but volume, the volume is the, higher, right?
1: Okay, the volumes yeah. are up. Okay, so, so the units but are, but the volume is like, okay, that's, that's still perfect. insane. So the next question I was going to ask you about the changes, improvements you made, but sounds like the big one is getting this HR. So prior to this HR person, how big was your team? So prior to the heart attack in 2019, how big was the team?
0: About uh, 15 15 at the time when I hired her was October 2019. I hired her. We had about 15. She was instrumental in helping hire another two or three before we got into COVID. When COVID hit, we were so lucky. We literally went paperless in February of 2019. So for us, as soon as COVID hit and we couldn't work in the office anymore, we were already digitized. So we actually, for us, it was a nothing burger when we ended up going from working in the office to working. uh, Yeah, thank goodness you
1: didn't have to walk down the hall with a stack of. You know, papers.
0: I have you, no would, idea yeah. how I would have done it. Like we still sit here, my business partner and I will on a weekend we'll be having a couple of drinks and say to ourselves, How did we get so lucky? You know, because the reality is is there's a lot of luck involved as well in our story and something like that. You know, because it wasn't just getting paperless. We also, at the time, were in the middle of building our digitized office processing system. You know, which if you're physically bringing file folders from department to department, you need to figure out now how to set up an online system, an office processing system that's going to move the digital file. Mimic along. the same thing, and yeah. It's the same, thing. yeah.
1: So, what tech stack do you use? So, what tech are you actually using behind the scenes to be able to manage 1,200 files in a team? Just out of curiosity. So Zoho
0: for us has been a life changer. Zoho has an amazing platform. We customized it. It took us eight months to build it. We basically mirrored our old archaic system and literally mirrored it to put it online on Zoho. And so that took a lot of money and took a lot of time. And it was funny because that's actually one of the last big projects that I was really involved in on the team where I was doing my crazy hours again. But once that was built, you know, this will sound crazy, but I've somewhat launched into semi-retirement after that. I mean, I still work quite a bit in the company, but I am not in sales anymore at all. I don't speak to clients. The new changes and everything allowed me to step off to the side and now be involved in projects. I've really taken on more of a CEO slash president role, whereas before I was just an agent. I was an agent trying to be an office manager and an everything guy, and when I hired the new office manager, that really opened the doors for me to do other things. I'm obviously blessed that my business partner, Daniel, is effectively like my brother. We've been together in business for not just the 20 years that we are doing mortgages. We were in business long before that, when we were in high school running bookie operations and everything else. I mean, we we, <laughs> we, were,
1: we were always Hustle, always hustling.
0: Always hustling and Dan is now taking on the old Dave Butler role where Dan is now, he's the head of sales. He works with all the clients, you know, he's running himself ragged and that's why I have a plan to get Dan out. You know, we have succession plans built. They've got me one step out the door and I got to get Dan one foot out the door over the next five years.
1: Right. Okay. What do you guys use to collect applications now for programs?
0: We're still pretty archaic on that. You'll laugh at us. This is one of the last things that we're in the middle of trying to kind of change we still send out an application, it's on a PDF and everyone will laugh at us for it. Obviously there's a lot of companies that have come to us with online applications and whatnot, but a lot of times you have to jump on their platform and we're pretty set with the platform that we're on. So we're in the process of building our own application where we just send the client an email, they click on a link and it then feeds into Phylogics. But we do have a, right now I would say the crazy part about us too is we do a lot of manual inputting still. So it goes to show we've got a lot of improvement that we can still make Mm -hmm. um, and we're in the process of doing all that. I mean, I have a Trello board now that has a million projects on it and that along with website is right at the top.
1: Right, okay, so you finally get a website. Okay, so what does your day look like now that you're not doing the sales? So what kind of hours and what are you doing? Just out of curiosity.
0: I'm in the middle of trying to figure out um, <laughs> this is funny. So the first part of my day, believe it or not, I wake up and I box, I work out and I box. I'm actually just fresh from boxing shortly ago. That's why I'm in a hat and I made it so in the same sweaty shirt that I was wearing. I do boxing training. I do a lot of cardio. I mean, I had a heart attack at 38. I got up to 255 pounds at the time. I smoked cigarettes. I drank Red Bulls as coffee.
1: You know, I wasn't sleeping right. Well, to run on four hours or three and a half hours of sleep a day, you know, that's eventually going to burn you out.
0: Red Bull does give you wings. So it did help me. out. It (laughs) It,
1: it works apparently
0: for a while, but it's certainly not good for your health. So now it's really the first half of my day is focused on my health. I have my team running, you know, all 35 people they are doing their thing. And then I'll jump in some meetings. I usually have meetings with different departments. I mean, at our team, we have an HR department. We have an app department. We have an underwriting department, a closing department. I have office manager and obviously I have a sales department. I have to meet with a lot of them. So I have scheduled meetings throughout the day. And the rest of my day is a lot of times working with my executive assistant and finishing up our projects, working on our projects. That's really what I do. Analyze a lot of data, analyze our sales. I'm also dealing with problems. I mean, some of my departments would come to me and there's issues on files and they need my expertise and trying to help them figure out how to fix this problem. But mm-hmm. um, I would say right now, I mean, Scott, if I was being honest with you, the podcast, the timing's good because... I am literally living what I dreamed now. You know, when I started this business, that was my dream. My dream was that I'd have a business that runs on its own and I can just sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labor. It took a heart attack to figure out That I needed to change things, and you know, three years later now, I finally am living my dream. I don't have to work if I don't want to, you know, from all the business that we've done from the years. But I still want to be number one, and I have an allegiance to my team. I want to work as hard as I can for them within reason. So I, I love this. I get to do projects all day. It's fun, and I think that that's tough for other brokers to keep up because at the end of the day, I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to beat them. And I always was, but now I actually have more time to do it and I can do it a lot healthier. And you have uh, a team You're competing
1: against a team instead of just one person trying to, you know, do mortgages. And that's awesome. I started Muay Thai again recently, and it's a lot of fun. The boxing part is the part I like the most. I don't like getting kicked so much, but uh, (laughs) so how many days a week do you box like every day?
0: Three days a week. Actually, it's funny. I'm on a week long vacation here up at my cottage right now. And, uh, I can't stand missing boxing. That's how much I'm addicted to it. So we actually brought my boxing trainer and his girlfriend up here to stay with me and my girlfriend. And he's here for the whole week. So this week we'll be doing five days a week, two days. We just yeah. did our first session. We'll be doing another session this evening, but it's three days a week, but I'd like to step that up. I mean,
1: boxing to me is- so You should fight Logan Paul. This would be great. I'd pay to watch that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a big boy. He will destroy me. And I've seen a lot of people make fun of those guys, Logan and his brother, but- if you actually, if you've boxed before, you know those kids. They're not just out there with no skill. They, they're marketers, but they also know how to box. I, they know
1: how to fight. Like they do. Yeah, I'm doing muay do. thai three days a week now with a private trainer, and I love it, man. Yeah. I'm just like it's so fun. Okay, so this is the question. Your niche seems to be a large chunk of it is investors. For some investors, if let's say. banks tomorrow you had no options in that what niche would you go after i'm just curious how your brain works because we're very dependent on that niche on the big banks and so you know obviously we send them lots of business but curious what your niche would be if that wasn't possible
0: i think the easy turn would be to join the rate war game because we have the money behind us we could certainly then jump into that margin compression game but if i'm being honest with you I would stay with what's worked well for a service service is our big thing. And yes, it works great with real estate investors because you're getting the volume out of them. But if I had to pivot and I couldn't do that game anymore, I would simply just go back to what I did in my first year, which was go after regular real estate agents really market to them that we're able to provide their clients with a level of service that they can't get in the industry. So I would probably stick to my service. The rate game is a cool game and I know it's where the future's going. but at the end of the day, until real estate agents are extinct, they're always going to be the first contact to a client that needs a mortgage. So in my opinion, you need to you know line yourself up with an army of real estate investors that are sending you their leads. And you need to service the heck out of them so that real estate agent doesn't need to go anywhere else you know there are a lot of real estate agents out there that if you show them you know what you're doing they will continue on to be loyal to you but building loyalty is something you have to do through your service and your results
1: right that's really good that's awesome i thought you might say like the alt mortgages or self-employed but services you guys think so Interesting. Okay. Well, Dave, it's been a lot of fun, man, chatting with you. Got to learn a lot about sort of how you run your business. And yeah, thanks for taking the time, brother. Where can people find you online or can they not even find you online? You guys are on the website.
0: <laughs> our new brand is called BM Select, Butler Mortgage Select. Our slogan is premium service, select clientele. It kind of goes to the, the theme that we work with select type of clients and we do provide a premium level of service. You can certainly reach us at our office. Well, it now goes through to our cloud call, which goes to our digitized office, but at one triple eight six eight four. 8-3-2-6. And you can also just email us. Our email address is info at bmselect.ca. I know it's an old school way of doing business. Well, hopefully the next podcast I do with you, I'll have a website and some social media. And I yeah, can, I'd be like, hey, I look, he's enjoy. on social
1: media. Yeah, Boxing. Like, okay, we're going to have like a broker boxing match. That's anyway, it. I'm in. That'd be <laughs> hilarious, actually. I would not fight you. You look like you'd kill me. You know, okay. No, 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 no. Thanks, brother. Good chat with you.
0: Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it.
2: Hey, Tom, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, great to be here. Really excited to chat with everyone a little bit today about just kind of what we've seen through all our years of working with our customers at Blue Mortgage.
1: Yeah, and so we want to talk about customer journey today. And so let's dive into some of your insights on customer journey, because this is something I talk about all the time. I'm a huge fan of developing a customer journey, but let's talk about in particular some of your insights that you picked up from looking at, you know, so many different clients that you guys have and how they set up their customer journey.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess the first thing that I always tell people or really the insight that I draw working with these people is people always come to me and say, I have a customer journey. You know, don't worry about that. You know, you just focus on the tech. I have those conversations all the time. And so I turn around to them and say, okay, well, in order to do that, I really want to understand your customer journey. I want to help it out. And you wouldn't believe really the number of people that come back to me and really just can't produce customer journey and i don't care what it is whether it's you know a document whether it's a spreadsheet whether it's a flow chart it doesn't really matter you know there seems to be that gap out there you know what's in your head and what can be actually documented and written down and i really push people to do that because you know when you think about these journeys it's one thing to have an idea in your head but if you ever want to think about scaling or applying these things to anything outside of what's in your head you really need to get that, you know, centralized and written down. So that's always my first point about these customer journeys. It's not enough just to say have it, get it down, get it in a place where you can share it, where you can distribute it, because that's how you're going to scale and that's how you can really evolve that customer journey.
1: Right. I can imagine, you know, somebody comes and says, Hey, I want to use technology to make my customer yeah. experience better. And you're like, okay, well, what do you want the technology to do? Because with all the clients you have, there's so many different, you know, unique customer experiences that they create. And you can't do that unless you have it separate. Your customer journey is not your technology. Your technology delivers customer journey is the map, the plan for the customer experience. The technology is embedded in there so that you can do a better customer experience. And the other mistake I see people make too, Tom, is that they have it in their head, but they don't realize they have three steps jammed together. And it's only when they give it to an assistant and they go, how come you forgot that? Because it's just like, (laughs) you didn't (laughs) tell me. It's like, well, you just put three steps into one. And so unless it's literally like a monkey could sit there and follow it and go, I know exactly what happens next, then it's not detailed enough. And it needs to be more detailed than you think, I think.
2: Yeah, no, and it has to be detailed. And to your point, you know, and from our perspective, you know, the customer journey is first. It's always first. It doesn't really matter what tech you're using, whether it's blue mortgage, whether it's this thing, whether it's that thing, you know, that's just going to help it, right? But it's not going to basically come in and define what that looks like. It's not going to allow you to lay out those steps. If you just say, hey, my customer journey, it's just sitting in my MailChimp, right? It's just there. Well, that doesn't count either because the customer journey is a standalone thing and it needs to be defined properly. And that's how, like I said, you can scale it and how you can really adapt it and learn from it. Right.
1: And if you do a good job of it, it actually can do prospecting for you. Like one of the things I've noticed with really smart mortgage brokers that have this dialed in, like my business partner, she doesn't prospect because her customer journey is so tight, she gets more clients. And so this is also marketing if you do it well. So what's the second sort of insight? So first, you said it must be documented outside of the technology so that you can actually apply the right pieces of technology to it. What's kind of the second insight that you've had from looking at some of these
2: yeah, yeah. I guess the really other big thing I would highlight too, though, is that although it's written down and although the technology enables it, you also have to recognize that it's an evolving thing. It's an evolving document. It's not going to be something that you sit down and you write today, and it's going to be you know, this customer journey that you have for 15 years or 20 years or whatever, right? I mean, the spirit and the theme of it can be that, but you need to be always going back and looking at it. you know, As your team evolves, maybe your customer journey needs to evolve. As your focus of your marketing, as you, saw, you pointed out, as that evolves, maybe you need to change your customer journey. Maybe you're really focused on realtors. So you need to be really thinking about your touch points with your realtors. And of course, as I see it, as technology evolves, right? You need to be able to adapt to that. I mean, a really, really simple example, but a really simple one that a lot of people can relate to is texting, right? Everyone thinks about texting today, and it's almost like a baseline thing. If I wanna have a top notch customer journey, I gotta be emailing, and I gotta be texting. Well, ten years ago, you couldn't even do that, right? Because you know, platforms like Twilio that text on your behalf didn't exist. So, as these things come along, you need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to quickly shift that and be agile with that, in both recognizing where the changes need to be, and of course, implementing those changes.
1: It's like twenty years ago, your customer journey probably had received facts from client.
2: Yeah, the only exactly company, the
1: right. only. So, hopefully, they're yeah. not listening to this, but the only people yeah. that I know that still use facts are the licensing groups like at least in bc when you do your relicensing, like you gotta fax it to us i'm like are you flipping kidding me i don't even have a fax <laughs> i'm like this is insane but you're right so because the document is separate from the technology as technology improves like texting for instance you can then embed it into the customer experience and it doesn't have to be you know done by you but it gets done every time and the other thing i think when it comes to texting in particular is that you know if you're trying to notify clients at different stages and email is okay but they may miss it. Like they're gonna see 95% of their text. So even the text, it's actually, to me, a level up. And I think it's almost table stakes now. If you're not doing that, you're probably, you know, you're not delivering as good of a customer experience as you could. That's my thoughts on that. So what's sort of your final thoughts on the whole customer journey thing as we wrap up this little mini chat on, you know, insights on customer journey?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, just really to kind of wrap things up to drive those two points we talked about. It's, hey, have a journey, but if it's in your head, it's not a journey, right? Get it down, get it somewhere, get it documented. And the other thing to keep in mind is that once it's in its document, it's not static. It's a living document, if you will. So understand that, recognize that, be adaptable, welcome those changes, and be quick to implement them.
1: Okay, Tom, that was awesome, man. Appreciate you. We'll chat with you again soon. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate it. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.